Let's read Mark 11:27 through 12:12. 12, 12. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you what, by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it one with another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But we, shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get for them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. So with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He said still, he had still one another, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. You can be seated. Thank you, Rich. Let's pray together. Father, truly, you are great. The power and the victory and the glory and the majesty is all yours in all the heaven and in all the earth because you created it all. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted far above all things, all riches, all honor, all fame, all, all things that are good, they come all from you, for you rule over all things. By your hand are all power and all might. Your hand, your hand alone makes great and gives strength to all. God, we thank you. We thank you for your great majesty. And we come dependent upon your power to be at work in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I, uh, I imagine that many of us uh, have kind of a love-hate relationship with authority. Am I right? Sometimes we like uh, being in charge. Does anybody like being in charge sometimes? I like being in charge sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's nice to be the one that makes the decisions, to not be told what to do, uh, to be able to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And uh, that, that is the fun part of being in charge, is it not? The not-so-fun part is when things go wrong. <laughs> and whether it was your fault or somebody that reports to you or somehow you were responsible for, 
it falls back on the one who's in charge. That's the not quite so fun part about authority. The only problem uh, is that they go together. You can't really have one uh, without the other. So let me ask you when, you, when you do have some authority, when you get to be in charge, whether it's just over small things or big things, how well, how well do you handle that? How well do you relate to being the one who is in charge? When you have some kind of control, some kind of power, how, how well do you lead? Can, can you lead others well? Can you be led by others well? Can you be a part of a team? Can you serve others if you're not the one in charge? How well do you do with authority? The question that is raised to Jesus in our section in Mark today is about authority. It's about who's in charge. It's about where, where does the buck stop? Who, who's got the ultimate authority? For many of us, our default is that we, we want to be in charge. We want to be the ones that take control. We want to be the ones that make the decisions. At the same time, I think probably for many of us, we can recognize, hopefully you've been the, the, the beneficiary of serving somebody else who is a good leader. Hopefully you've been in a place, whether it's at work or home or church or somewhere, and if you are led by good leaders, you see the, the fruit of that, the blessing of that, the benefit of having good leaders. So both being a good authority and being under good authority can both be beneficial blessings. The question is, are we, are we willing to submit sometimes when we recognize that the ultimate authority is not ourselves? After our, our section in Mark 11, we saw last week where Jesus comes in with quite a bit of authority, flipping over tables in the temple. He gets some questions, understandably so, about, wait a second, Whose authority? Who gave you the right to do this? Jesus had come into the, t- the temple and, as we saw last week, declared not just a, that there were a, a few small things wrong. The, he was declaring a whole new system was going to come in place. And so the religious rulers of that day uh, were pretty astonished because the way he acted wasn't like other people. He acted with a level of authority that they had not seen before. And this is not the first time this has been said of Jesus throughout the Gospels, even just in Mark. Back to Mark 1.22, people were astonished because he taught as somebody who had authority. In Mark 1.27, they're amazed that he had the authority to cast out demons. In Mark 2.12, he proved he had authority to forgive sins, and the way he proved it was by healing a man who was paralyzed. The religious rulers may have known something about those stories from earlier in Jesus' life, but certainly the day that he comes in and takes charge in the temple, they recognize this guy is at least putting himself forward as an authority. And so they have some questions about that. Mark eleven twenty eight. they say, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you the authority to do them? Now, on that day, it was very common for teachers and leaders to quote Rabbi so-and-so. Oh, according to the tradition of Rabbi so-and-so, this is our interpretation of the law. Well, based on the authority of the, this rabbi or that teacher or this, this tradition, that's how they would have interpreted So perhaps they were expecting Jesus to respond that way. I follow the, this, this rabbi, this tradition, and that's why I'm acting the way I'm doing. It would have been a lot easier for them if that's how Jesus would have responded. Because you see, the people coming to Jesus, they're listed as the chief priest. Uh, the scribes, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. That, those three groups would have made up a, a group called the Sanhedrin. 
uh, which was a group of 71 religious leaders at the time. And basically, they were in charge of all things temple and religion related. So when Jesus comes in and starts throwing things around, he's stepping on their feet. He's getting in their territory. And so if Jesus would have said, yeah, I'm following the rabbi so-and-so, then the Sanhedrin delegation here would have been able to refute him and say, wait, 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 you got it all wrong. It's this way, not, not that way. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, him being Jesus, responds to a question with a question in classic Jesus form. He asked them about John's baptism. John was the one who baptized Jesus, so Jesus appeals back to that part of his life and to John's ministry. And he asks him, Jesus asks the, the religious leaders, which, which one did John have? Where did John come from? Whose authority did John have? Was his authority from God or from man? He boils it down to just those two categories. Now, if you're there, if you're reading through Mark's gospel, the right answer was really clear. Nobody could miss what the right answer was. Jesus asked a softball question. If it's just about getting the right answer, nobody could miss it. Everybody around knew. Verse 32 tells us, everybody knows that John was a prophet. Everybody, everybody understood that. John came from heaven. This is sent by God. So Jesus, by all he's done up to this point, has proven he, like John, is not just some, some regular guy. This is not just a, a human authority. There is more going on here. And yet, the religious authorities, religious rulers, refuse to give an answer. They won't do it. And so Jesus refuses to answer their question, but then tells them a parable. The parable is about an owner of a vineyard who leases out, is it out to, to, to a group of tenants who are supposed to, to cultivate the land, cultivate the fruit, and then give some of that fruit to the owner. Seems reasonable enough. But in the parable, every time the owner sends a servant back to, those, to his land, they either beat or kill that servant. And it happens over and over again. And we'll come back to the important pieces of this parable, but I want to just summarize it to get to the ending of this parable to see, to see its message. Verse 9, we read Jesus telling this parable, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. The owner will not stand for the rejection of his authority, and the tenants will pay for their foolishness. So Jesus' parable is, is very clear to all who heard it. Verse 12, they, the religious leaders even perceive that Jesus had told the parable against them. So it's not like many of the parables uh, in, in the Gospels where everybody just leaves kind of scratching their head like, what was he talking about? This one, everybody got it. The religious rulers, they realized he's talking about us. In the parable, it's clear the owner represents God. The, the vineyard represents God's people. So the tenants are the religious rulers who are supposed to be cultivating and, and helping God's people. They had come asking Jesus about authority. And with this parable, they heard loud and clear that Jesus was telling them they have no respect for God's authority. They had missed the true authority. They were acting like they had an authority that they didn't have. God is in charge. And this group of people was not honoring Him. And I want to ask, will we? Will we honor God? God's unrivaled authority commands our honor. God's unrivaled authority commands our respect, our reverence, 
our praise, a whole life in submission to Him. He demands, He commands our honor. Do we honor God as God? In the way you live your life, how do you treat the Lord over all the universe? Do you treat Him as Lord? Do you honor Him as God? Do you acknowledge that He has the authority over your life from the beginning to the end? Or, like these religious leaders that Jesus faced in that day, do we, do we push back? Do we buck up against His authority and, and prefer to do things our own way? These authorities were so, so offended that they wanted to arrest Him. They wanted to take Him, and eventually they would take Him and kill Him. They didn't like being told that Jesus had authority over them and that somehow they weren't honoring God with their authority. Jesus was clearly making a statement that He is from God. Just as the parable, the tenants ought to have respected the owner of the vineyard, so also these religious rulers ought to have honored and respected God's Son and God who reigns over all things, and they do not. He's giving them a very clear and strong warning that this is not a path that you should stay on because it's not going to go well for you in the end. God being in charge of all things will not in the end allow His name to be defamed forever. In the end, the owner of the vineyard will come and He will destroy the tenants. And no uncertain terms, Jesus was telling them, God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. He's worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our praise. Our whole lives are meant to be lived in reverence, in respect, in honor to His glory. Because He is the authority. When you, when you first think of God, for what, what, what words, how would you first describe God? There's lots of great, glorious uh, the Bible is full of all kinds of ways to describe God. God is our, is our Father. God is our Counselor. God is, is our Comforter. God is our Friend. Depending on how, how the human relationships you have in your lives, like depending on what your Father is like or, or Comforters or, or Friends, we, we sometimes can take these, these analogies, essentially is what they are, trying to get us to understand what God's like. Sometimes we can impose those things over on God and we can treat God like He is our equal. As you've grown up, your, your, your father goes from being a, an authority over you to still always your father, but, but more like a peer. We never get there with God. We never get to be God's equal. He is never our peer. He is our friend. He is a compassionate, loving God. But when we try to bring God down to our level, we have defamed God. Do you consider God's holiness, His majesty, His splendor? We already heard from 1 Chronicles 29 where David prays, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. God, God created all that we see, all the galaxies, all the planets, all the stars. He created all the oceans and all the rivers and all the mountains. He created it all, and He holds it in the span of His hand. Do you respect and honor God as God? Do you worship Him as the Lord? His majesty ought to give us a sense of, of holy reverence. The Bible speaks of a fear of the Lord. Not, not a sense of, uh, of dread, but a sense of wonder and awe and respect. Is that our posture, our heart before the Lord? Jesus reminds those around Him of, of John's baptism. And we, we know that story. It's in just earlier in Mark. Mark chapter 1 
talks about Jesus being baptized by, by John. And when he does, when he comes up out of the water, the, the sky parts. And there's a voice from heaven. The, the dove descends. And the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We, we had a, an awesome service last week baptizing four people over here. It was so special. Do you know what didn't happen all four of those times? The sky didn't open. The, the ceiling didn't part. No dove came and descended upon any of those people, as special as they are. And there was no voice from heaven declaring God's special privilege over each of these. They are all special. You are all special. But there was only one Jesus. In all the baptisms that have ever happened, all the millions of people over thousands of years, only one got that. Only one is the Son of God. He is the one who has supreme power, supreme glory over all things. This parable that Jesus tells makes it clear that there is one who is in charge. He's the owner of the vineyard. He's the owner of all things. And in the end, he will not be disrespected. He is God. Jesus here is, is referencing Isaiah 5. Isaiah uses the same image of a, of a vineyard as the, the way he describes his people. And the way he's prepared it all. There's, there's the tower and the wine press and the, the wall around it. God has prepared. He's made a way for, for his people to flourish. In Isaiah 5, he talks about how there's, there's wild grapes that are growing. They're not, they're not honoring God. Jesus takes the same image there. And talks about not just the wild grapes, but here he talks about those who are supposed to be cultivating the land, who are not doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. As you read through that, that parable, it's almost painful to read as the owner sends one servant and he's beaten. Another servant, he's killed. And you, you read through that parable and you go, you know, uh, Mr. Owner Man, <laughs> by servant number three, like, <clears throat> you know, he probably should have anticipated what was coming. And we could look at that and we could wonder if this owner was foolish. But let us not mistake God's patience as foolishness. God is so remarkably patient with us as His people, is He not? For thousands of years through the Old Testament, this is what this parable represents. God sent prophet after prophet. He sent judge. He sent king. He sent over and over, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah and Ezekiel, all these people, Daniel, Samuel, David, Solomon, all these people God is sending messenger after messenger, calling His people to repent, to come back to Him, turn from your wicked ways, follow the Lord who is the Lord over all things. Surely God, being God, after the first or second messenger, what would it have been like Genesis 15? <laughs> he could have just ended it all. And yet he continued in his patience. And so he is patient toward us. God, being God, knows how it's going to end. He knew, if we just take the parable, he knows where, where we're going to get to by verse 9. He doesn't have to hurry up. He doesn't have to stop at the second or third servant as if he doesn't know how it's going to end. I better come and end this now. No, he knows how it's going to end. He will prove himself to be Lord. But by his grace, he has given his people, he's given you and me, time and time again to hear his message, to repent, and to honor him as God. Don't confuse God's patience for foolishness. Repent. Honor the Lord as the Lord. Treat him as God. If we truly recognize God's unrivaled authority and his gracious and his goodness toward us, 
How will we live? We will walk in obedience to him, will we not? We will recognize that this, this owner is not some malicious dictator who's demanding things of us that are evil. No, he is a gracious, gracious, loving father who has been patient with us and has yet earned, deserving of our lives meant to live for his glory. We should be eager and willing to heed his word and apply his commands to our lives. Do you, do you know God's authority? And do you know his goodness? Do you know his patience with us? If so, then we want, we want to respond in obedience to him. Our life in obedience, our life respecting and honoring his authority is a life walking in his commands. Perhaps you've had good and bad experience with human authorities over you. If you've had the blessing of working for somebody who is a good boss, you know the joy that it is to walk alongside them, to be serving with them, and the privilege it is to participate. Perhaps you know the other side of that and how hard it can be to work for somebody who is not a good boss. You have the greatest boss ever, and his name is the Lord. He is who you serve. The New Testament even talks about even the things that we do. Speaking of, of, old, of, of, of ancient times, bond servants, even bond servants, he says, Worship, uh, uh, work as you're working to the Lord. Your ultimate, no matter who your employer is, your ultimate boss is the Lord. That's who you're ultimately working for. And he is a good boss. He is a good and gracious Lord. And he is worthy of your best. He's worthy of honoring him and following his commands. And of course, we don't always do that, do we not? We reject that authority quite often. When we don't honor God as God, usually it's because we want the authority to land somewhere else, usually with us. If we give all authority to mankind, whether it be us or somebody else, if we give all authority to humans, to mankind, we will live in fear. And that's what we see happens to this group of religious leaders that Jesus saw that day. We think that we, we don't want to give God glory. We don't want Him to be the authority. We, we want to be the authority. But it doesn't actually work out that well for this group. What, why did the religious rulers confront Jesus? It's because they, they didn't like that He was coming in their territory and telling them what to do. They are the ones that set the rules about the temple. They're the ones that set the parameters about who sells what animals where and when and how and how the money is all going to be exchanged. They, they were in charge of that. That was their authority. And so when Jesus comes in and starts flipping tables and changing things up, they say, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want you in charge. I'm in charge. They don't like somebody disrupting their authority. As Jesus tells this parable, they go so far, they're so angry about the, the, the change of authority that they understood the parables about them, and yet they were willingly going to live out the part that hadn't happened yet. They, they admit, we want to go kill this guy. Wait, wait, didn't you just read the parable? It doesn't go well for the guys that killed the beloved son. But they're so offended that somebody would take their authority, that they're willing to take that kind of step against God. They didn't want to give up authority, and so they're going to fight for what they had. They're continuing to act like they, had, they, they were going to do what they want no matter the cost. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody who really likes being in charge and really likes making decisions and maybe gets a little bit upset when they don't get their way? I, I saw somebody like that, that just this morning. He was in the mirror. <laughs> we have this tendency 
to be this guy, to be like this. Somebody comes in and tells me that I'm not going to do the things that I, I can't do them the way I want to do them or I got to change things or something else. We have this, this, this prideful nature that bucks against that and says, wait, 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 this is my authority. I thought I was in charge here. Many times those are moments for us to step back. We will very well maybe in authority, but uh, the, the way we respond in that moment might be a check to see who are we really serving, God or ourselves. In our own self-centeredness, and our own pride, we like to be the ones in charge. and We don't like it. It's uncomfortable when somebody comes in and questions that, pushes that around, even if it's Jesus. Do you see there's, a, there's an ironic twist here about these religious rulers? They, they, they are responding to Jesus. They're offended that Jesus is, is coming and taking their authority. But do you see what the limiting factor is in what they do? In verse 32, they felt like they could not say that John the Baptist was only from man. It says because they were afraid of the people. We get the same phrase again in chapter 12, verse 12. They wanted to arrest Jesus right then and there, but they couldn't because they feared the people. So let me ask you, who's really in charge here? Jesus is proving he's, he's the ultimate one in charge, whereas the religious rulers thought they were. But they're not even in charge of the people. The crowd has more authority than the religious rulers. So if you were making a chart here of, of, of the organization here, there's Jesus at the top, then the crowd, the religious rulers are on the bottom. They are living in fear of people, and because of that, they don't even have an authority over anybody. They have no authority at all. And that's what happens when we try to put ourselves in charge. We actually just live in fear. We're living our lives trying to defend our place, and we're always going to be in fear. If we give all authority to mankind, whether it's, it's us or somebody else, we're going to be constantly uh, fighting to try to defend our place. If the greatest authority in our lives is some form of, of human humanity, us or somebody else, We'll spend our whole lives trying to climb the authority ladder or, or make ourselves self-sufficient or, or fighting off any challenges to my authority or, or being defensive against anybody who would question or challenge any kind of power you may have. And we're going to live very paranoid, very paranoid that somebody's going to come in and take something from us. And so we're going to, we're going to be defensive. We're going to try to guard what we have. And so we might respond with, with anger, whether it's the government asking you to pay taxes or somebody at work asking you to do something you didn't sign up to do, or, or, or somebody else uh, just asking you to do something. You, I don't want to do that. We get angry. Why, why do we get angry at authority? Well, any number of reasons, but one of them may be we just don't like being told what to do. We want to be in charge of our lives. We want to be the ones that call the shots. And if we live in fear of man, in fear of other people, we're, we're going to spend our whole lives that way. We have to look above the authorities around us. There is a good and healthy place of human authority in our lives. Is there not? So many things would not work well without a God-honoring system of authority. Marriage requires a God-honoring system of authority. Your work, our church, businesses, our government, we are thankful for good authority. And at the same time, if we live dependent only on human authority, it's going to go ugly. We have to recognize who we're ultimately serving. The Lord Himself. As the, the religious people try to, try to make their way through this conversation with Jesus, and they, they don't come out very good in the end, do they? They look pretty foolish. One of the things I find fascinating 
is that when Jesus asked them the question about John the Baptist, did you hear what they did or, or didn't do? He says, which one did John the Baptist have? Was he from man or from God? You know what didn't even cross their minds? That, that you get like kind of the behind the scenes discussion. They didn't ask themselves which one was true. They didn't care. That, that was not relevant to them about what was the truth. All they cared about was which one's going to be better for us. The only, they, they know they've got to answer one of two ways, and their, their little, little paradigm for how they're going to make that decision is, all right, if we answer this way, what does that do for us? If we answer this way, what does it do for us? Do you hear where the authority lies there? Me. If you live your whole life without a truth authority to stand on, you're going to live a miserable life. The question is about truth. What's true? The truth is that John the Baptist came from heaven. He is a prophet sent from the Lord. And Jesus is the beloved son. But they don't care about the truth. They just want to do things for themselves. And that is a dangerous, awful, scary place to live. There is a solid rock you can stand on. And his name is Jesus. He is the truth. He is the authority. And if you spend your whole life trying to just navigate through the, the political type maneuvering with, with, with different relationships as how's this going to affect me and what's really good for me and trying to, trying to be in charge of all the different moving pieces without a reference to truth, you're going to live a miserable, miserable life. God's the authority. We live to honor Him and He is the truth we can stand on. There is, there is one more description of Jesus' authority in this passage, God's authority in this passage that I, I think tops all of it so far, sums it all up really, and just beckons, pleads us to submit to Him as good. At the end of the parable in, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus tells us that the, the last person that the, owners, the owner sends to his field is his own beloved son. It says the tenants kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. And then to help us interpret what this parable means, Jesus then quotes from Psalm 118, which is part of our memory verse for the month. And he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, cornerstone is kind of a, a, a common Christian, Christian term. We reference it, it gets referenced multiple times in the New Testament, so it makes our songs a lot. Perhaps you understand basically how that works. I'm no builder, but what I read about this in ancient times cornerstone that's where two walls are going to meet and so that's essentially it's saying this is the most important stone if this stone's wobbly or crooked or whatever else it's going to mess everything up but the stone that becomes the cornerstone is one that somebody else rejected so there's this great irony this great twist here this, these guys were building the house and they threw a stone out they don't even need that one and that one becomes the the, the linchpin the, the corner the, the key piece of the next house now some interpreters take issue with that word say, actually, it wasn't the cornerstone they're talking about. It was the capstone. Like our sister's church down the front. I guess I didn't ask him, but I guess that's where they interpret this word, capstone. But same, same principle, different part of the architect, uh, architectural structure. For the, 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 some kind of car curved structure, the capstone that goes in the middle is what holds it all together. You take the capstone out and it all falls apart. Whether it's the capstone or the cornerstone, you get the idea. It's the same idea. This is the most important stone. Without this one, it all falls apart. You've got to have this stone. And Jesus is saying, the beloved son, the one who is sent to the vineyard from the owner, he gets rejected, and yet he becomes the most important piece. That's what Jesus is saying about who he is. 
Do you hear the very next verse? Verse 11, again, still quoting from Psalm 118. This was the Lord's doing. This was the Lord's doing. Here's what I want you to hear about just how awesome our God is and how complete His authority is. Praise God that His authority extends even over our rebellion. Do you hear this? These, these tenants of the vineyard in the parable, or the religious leaders in, the, in real life, they are rejecting God. They're rejecting the one who is in control of all things. They are wicked and evil. God was so patient, messenger after messenger, time after time. They are wicked and evil. And even that does not stop the plan of God. Your sins and my sins don't stop God from being God. That is good news. Because if it could, we got a whole bunch of sin we're trying to stop Him, can't we? It is really, really good news that our own rebellion is under the authority, the providence, the purposes of our God. The stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone. And you see what happens here? The, the, the people who are in the vineyard thinking they can get their own way, they end up serving the purposes they were trying to stop. It's like Joseph telling the, his brothers at the end of his life, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. It's like Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. You wicked people put Jesus on the cross just as God planned for it to happen. Do you see God's sovereignty here? Do you see His authority? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. The Lord was in charge, even over the rejecting, even over the rebellion, even over the blatant rejection of God's authority. Even over that, God's in charge. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that's why the next line says, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Marvelous. Praise God that He orchestrates all the planets keeping orbit around the sun. Praise God that our earth is tilted at just the right angle and has just the right amount of oxygen, all the things that just make it work. And praise God that He's in charge of how many hours of sleep I get a night. Praise God that He's in charge of where you're going tomorrow morning and the job you have or don't have and the family you have or don't have. And praise God that He's in charge over the dumb decisions you made last week and you might make again this week. Praise God that there is absolutely nothing in this universe outside of God's control. Even your sins, even your rebellion, even our blatant defense or blatant uh, offensive ways we respond to God. Even over that, God is in control. The question comes then, will we submit to that or live our lives in rebellion against it? Because God is in control of it all, and He will be praised one way or the other. But for these religious rulers, as they're described in the parable, the way they end is that the owner comes and destroys them. They will not mock God forever. The other option, though, is to recognize that He is in charge of all things, and He is so good, so patient, so loving, and He invites you to know Him and follow Him forever. 
to live a life in obedience, to live a life in submission, to live a life praising God as God. And that is marvelous in our eyes. It is glorious. It is good news. There is no greater joy than knowing that we have an authority, a king who reigns over all things. And he's invited you to be a part of the kingdom. Jesus uses this word authority a few other times. One more I wanted to highlight. It comes after Jesus' death and resurrection. He hangs out with his disciples a handful of times in that period between his resurrection and his ascension. One of those happens on, the, on a mountain in Galilee. And Jesus reminds his disciples, Matthew 28, 18, all authority, same word, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just like Jesus was telling these uh, just earlier in, in the week, really earlier in the week before, just like he's telling the religious rulers about who's really in charge, so Jesus tells his disciples there on the mountain in Galilee, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's been true ever since the beginning of creation. But Jesus proved it especially true that week as he defeated sin, Satan, death, the grave forever. So if we ever were in doubt, as of Matthew 28, we know for real all authority, even over the grave, belongs to Jesus. So what's he going to do with that authority? Jesus says at the end of this, I'm going to be with you always. So there's an important part of that. And then he says this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Do you hear what Jesus does with his authority? He delegates it to you and me to take that authority and show the world how great your God is, how great he is that reigns over all and sent his Son to die for your sins, so that you can know Him, confess Him as Lord, be baptized, and then your whole, live your whole life knowing God's commands and following Him, living in glad, joyous, humble submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is one King, one God, one ruler, and He has invited you to follow Him. He has an unrivaled authority that commands, demands, our honor, our respect, our reverence. And we praise Him. We live our lives in praise of Him. Because even our rejection doesn't stop Him. And I pray that we would follow Him in obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank You for what You've done for us through Your Son. Father, as we continue just to see Jesus' life on this earth, we're amazed at His teaching, amazed at His authority, Amazed at the way he, he lived and the way He displayed your character, displayed your nature to all those around. Father, as we, as we keep seeing Him interact with disciples and leaders and all the other people, God, there's so many who missed it, who didn't see Him, who didn't see you in the flesh and on the earth and did not respond to Him in faith. Father, we pray by your incredible power, that would not be true of us today. God, that we would see you for who you are and we would live a life in humble obedience to you. God, all authority belongs to you in heaven and on earth. For all of our days, we will be praising you. So God, I plead that we would live that way here and now. Living a life in humble submission to you, honoring your commands, 
God, we know apart from the work of your spirit, that's impossible. So God, I pray for any who may not know you today, they will respond in repentance and in faith so that we may live a life in submission to your commands. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.